You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Hey, good morning again. All right, um, this is not the last Sunday, so we're not going to treat it uh, that way. But I'm just so pleased and happy for you, Gateway Church. The journey you've gone on and the journey that lies before you and the decision that was made uh, really over these last few months, culminating last Sunday, uh, you made with discernment and wisdom, maturity and grace, and uh, I'm very proud of you. And uh, I think, uh, I don't know what you did last week, but the the search team went above and beyond the call of duty. I mean, the hours put in and the diligence and the work. Search team, you know who you are, uh, but why don't we just real quick thank them for the hard work that they did. There's still a lot of work to do now going forward. Uh, Pray that the transition goes smoothly. If you've ever moved, if anything could go wrong, it always does, right? Murphy sends teams to go in every moving van I've ever been a part of. So let's pray for the McMahons that uh, God blesses them, graces them, and this transition goes without uh, heartache. I had forecast at the beginning of this this series that we're in on the Psalms of Ascents, and I don't have a I don't have a chance to really introduce the whole service for the sake or series for the sake of time uh, this morning. Other than these fifteen Psalms, beginning in Psalm one twenty, ending in one thirty four, give us a, a, a framework of of discipleship. They really paint for us a picture of the Godward lived life, and they were demonstrated as the pilgrims in Palestine would chant these 15 psalms three times a year as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for the big uh, festivals. And uh, go back, pick up any one of them for a good solid uh, introduction uh, off by way of the podcast. And and let's jump into this one. I had forecast that I probably wouldn't finish this series. Jim said, oh, no way, you'll be, and I'm not. So... um, (laughs) We'll, uh, and I doubt if I'm going to cram all five into next week. We'll see what happens. But this psalm is one of those parts of the Bible, right? Um, that you, if, if you have any kind of you know, sensibility or sensitivity at all, you can look at it and you can see why some critics say that religion, Judaism, Christianity in particular as a way of encouraging aggression in people's thoughts and actions. And there are those who say that religion is the cause of all wars, that all religions are the cause of all wars, or that the Bible is hate speech, etc. And in many ways, you know, I can understand uh, their point. This psalm is one of them, we call it an in precatory psalm, it's it's one of those that's that's calling upon God to to like drop judgment on people. There's a wish that God would ruin the lives of people who were who were cruel uh, towards the psalmist or Israel or or God's people. So when we read this psalm, you got to ask yourself, um, what are we supposed to do? with these kinds of emotions when we encounter them in the Bible. 
Do those who criticize uh, Christianity as being inherently violent, I mean, do they, do they have a point? Is there, is there an element of truth in what they're saying? And what do we do with these startling and seemingly strange statements when we find them in the Bible? And there's several approaches that human beings uh, have or can take. Probably the most common is to simply avoid them. You know, only read the parts of the non-controversial passages of the Bible. Uh, repeated, you know, uh, readings of John 3.16 or 1 Corinthians 13 or Psalm 23. You know, the, the comfy, comfortable comforting passages. And uh, we know that that doesn't really work because there's just so much uh, that we, that's outright hard to understand. Even with something as simple and, and central as, as the cross, I mean, upon it, someone dies violently. And there are many in these days, who reject the whole notion of atonement theology, saying that it legitimizes violence by the sheer fact that the atonement upon a cross was a violent act. Or get very queasy about some of the things that Jesus said and his claims of exclusivity and being the only way to God and the kind of judgment statements that he, he brings are are shocking and startling and sometimes outright examples people want to say of aggression. We can't ignore these questions or the people who genuinely ask them. Nor can we put our head in the sand and say that the Bible is really the Bible is all about love because look there are parts of it that are not about love. And anyone who reads the Bible with any kind of honesty will know there are places God is described as having enemies. So how in the world do we deal with that as rational human beings? How do you answer when there's a psalm that wishes that some people not get blessed? Well, one thing is we can't ignore it. We can't be like Thomas Jefferson who just took a piece, a pair of scissors and cut out the parts of the Bible that he, he didn't like. Nor can we simplistically rationalize it away and say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, whereas the God of the New Testament is somehow different, as if he had some kind of personality transplant. And that's a really common idea, but is it right? No. To start with, most obviously, are we then saying that God is different in one testament than he is from the other? Does God change between the Old and the New Testaments? What about Jesus Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever? Or God being eternal? More than this rationalization is that it doesn't make sense on a logical level, meaning it doesn't fit logically with what we do know about God, and if it doesn't make sense, that that doesn't make sense if we honestly read the Bible. For instance, when Paul in the New Testament urges the Roman Christians to forgive, to return blessing for cursing, you know what he was doing? He was quoting the Old Testament book 
of Proverbs. In fact, once you begin to read the Bible honestly, you find that the Old Testament is full of the revelation of God. The Old Testament is what tells us that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. One of the key words of the Old Testament has said, if you want to see it in its original uh, uh, Hebrew text, just check Dan Davis's forearm. In fact, show us. Just hold it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. So check it out afterwards. He'll show you uh, what it looks like in the Hebrew uh, text. And it means the covenant faithfulness and love of God. Straight from the Old Testament. At the same time, in the New Testament, you find that no one talks about hell more frequently than Jesus Christ. Or in Revelation, God's wrath being poured out on evil is, man, it's described in, let's face it, pretty scary terms. So the solution is not to pick and choose those parts of the Bible that fit into our view of what we want God to be like and therefore make all of make God into some kind of different God than it really is, which is called an idol. Well, I like to think of God as what you like to think of God as. How does God think God is? That's like me saying, I like to think of, of myself, I, I like to self-identify as a 6'10", 285-pound power forward for the Golden State Warriors. What gives me the right to decide how tall I am? And what right gives human beings to define so instead of picking and choosing the parts that we prefer, defined by our own ideas and preferences and cultural mores, consider whether the passage in front of us this morning is perhaps really saying something bigger and better than we could have possibly imagined, no matter how surprising it is at first glance. Could it be that, in fact, it's saying something not beneath our own moral preferences, but in fact something way, way above them. Well, let's take a look and see. Verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> like Phil read, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, and it's implied say again, Greatly how they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made long their furrows. Verses 1 to 3 describe someone who's been afflicted. Now, friends, this is really some of the most practical instruction on how to get out of the darkness of bitterness and hatred and shame and into the light of hesed, of peace, of shalom, into your life, into your sanity, into your family, into your business. So hang on. I'm going to have to move pretty quick. 
This psalm speaks to us in the voice of an individual. Greatly have they afflicted me. And yet, all the people, let Israel now say, are encouraged to speak the truth. So it's personal and it's communal. In it is the affliction which is common to all people. It's also Israel's suffering illustrated through an individual's testimony, and it's a messianic prophecy of Christ identified as Israel. It's, It's all of those. And the psalm is talking about God's people, Israel, and about an individual who's identified closely with and apparently honored by them. What happened to this individual? And we'll see it was awful. Closely concerns the heart of God himself for his people. When the Bible says God will judge, it's God's word saying God will judge, not some hyped-up wannabe trying to get vengeance on some political or ethnic or religious enemy. This person has experienced profound and deep suffering in their past. He's been afflicted all the way back to my youth. It's not some circumstantial personal attack that happened yesterday. It's, it's impersonal attack. It's personal. They afflicted him, and they afflicted him greatly. And the fact that it's repeated emphasizes just how bad it was. Greatly they've afflicted me in my youth. Greatly they've afflicted me in my youth. And that's the Bible's way. Anytime it repeats something, it's like highlight, italicize, you know, underlined emphasis. And even though this affliction is so severe that it bears repeating, he's apparently not been defeated. There's hope, despite the difficulty. And while the suffering is personal, they afflicted him, not the situation. It's real, an affliction, not an inconvenience. It's serious, it's great, not minor. And long-lasting, from my youth, not yesterday. From my youth is another way of saying all my life. He or she can still say, yet They have not prevailed against me. The afflicted person is clearly a survivor, if not a savior. And if you're not convinced that this triumph of adversity is remarkable, verse 3 specifies just how bad his affliction was. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. It's picture language. All this seems, feels like I've been hit by a plow. It's possible that these words are references to the practice in some of the ancient world where prisoners were plowed alive into the soil for fertilizer. Others were tortured. It also can be a description of whips opening wounds upon someone's back that in the 19th century here in the States, in describing the whipping of slaves, that it looked like 
furrows in a farmer's field. Regardless, the one who penned this psalm had suffered immeasurably. And once you consider that possibility, you begin to realize that this is not addressing some minor issue from the psalmist's past. This is about the truly horrible afflictions that life can throw at us. The war zones of the world and the war zones of the mind, of the heart, of the affections, of the family, of the emotional, mental, and physical well-being. And how in the world then do you help someone move beyond this kind of stuff in their life? How can captor live with captive once the captivity ceases? History has tried many ways to solve the wounds of the past. Seventy years ago, it was the Nuremberg trials at the end of World War II. Or in recent history, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after apartheid. There have been all sorts of general assemblies or attempts to sweep big issues collectively of community or nations under the rug or individuals attempting to sweep their own suffering under the rug with alcohol and chemicals and all kinds of behavior? Or do we let it all come out and just have the great truth-telling session to one another in some great gestalt therapy session? If that's the case, how do you ever know what anybody is saying is actually the truth? Or do we sort it all out in human courts of law? And if that's the way to do it, how does it, that procedure not become the victor's justice? In other words, that the previous victims now become the new victimizers and we just end up in a hamster wheel of misery as individuals or as a society? Or is the solution, in fact, something higher and better than you and I could ever possibly imagine? Look at verse 4. If you want freedom from the past, here's where it begins. Verse 4. The Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. The solution is found in two Hebrew words, Yahweh Sadiq. The Lord is righteous. So the psalmist has had this great affliction in his or her life, verse 1, from their youth. And it's such extreme suffering that it's repeated and greatly is in the emphatic position in those sentences just to make clear how bad it was. Greatly, greatly repeated from his youth, but he survived. Otherwise, the psalmist wouldn't have been here to write the psalm. Yet, They've not prevailed against me, still standing. Nonetheless, this affliction of the past is overshadowing his presence. It's going around and around in his mind. 
It's repeating over and over. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth. He can't get any sleep. It's right there in front of him. He can't get distracted. It's always there. He can't get his mind off it. Because he was stabbed in the back. The plowers plowed his back with long furrows. Such betrayal is unforgettable. Then in verse 4 comes the solution. The Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. The harness attaching the plow of suffering to the oxen of the offense has been cut. So the psalmist is free. Free from the past's ability to harm the present. And when you really begin to delve into this statement, the Lord is righteous, he's cut the cords of the wicked, you begin to see that it's an easy answer that unfortunately is too easy. It's easy to say that the solution is that you have to forgive those who've afflicted you. Right? Forgiveness of course, is always the right answer. But when you just say it like that, cut the cords, it's all good, there's an assumption that forgiveness is fairly easy, and that forg- but what you know from experience, forgiveness is anything but easy. Obviously, we're all called to forgive, our Savior on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know what to do. The, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, praying very similarly that those who were stoning him to death, killing him with rocks, would be forgiven. But how? How do you and I today live in the present and not be stuck in the past? How can we be released from being victimized, not live as a victim. How do we forgive? It starts by acknowledging it's not easy. Simon Weisenthal, in his magnificent book, The Sunflower, on possibilities and limits of forgiveness, and it's magnificent only in that it's very honest of the human condition and points out our our unending need for grace. Because he recalls in his book how, as a Jew who survived the Holocaust, was called to the bedside of a former Nazi who had committed unspeakable atrocities, who now was lying on his deathbed. And there he was. And in came Dr. Weisenthal as a representative of all of the Jewish people. And the former Nazi asked him, after confessing all of the things he'd done, to forgive him. And Weisenthal paused and simply walked away. He couldn't do it. The book that Weisenthal offered authored was a collection of essays answering a question, what would you do? What would you have done in the same place? 
Perhaps walking away sounds easy, but can you ever really walk away if you don't forgive? I had the privilege of of interviewing General Bud Day. You may or may not know his name, Sioux City native, Medal of Honor recipient, three war veteran. Bud Day was Senator John McCain's roommate in the Hanoi Hilton, a prisoner of war camp in the Vietnam War. When having been shot down, he ejected out of his fighter bomber plane, shattering his right arm, was shot twice uh, while being pursued and eventually captured and spent five years in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp, beaten incessantly, And he was recalling a newspaper interview uh, to me in, in my interview about had he forgiven his captors. And he very rationally said, if I don't forgive them, then they still have me in prison, don't they? There's a perspective on this topic found only in experience. Acknowledgement that forgiveness is not easy and very difficult and sometimes humanly impossible and a very practical realization that unforgiveness is a prison every bit as real as anything constructed by any regime. But clearly it's easier to talk about forgiveness than it is to do it. So how does one escape from the prison of their past? Because the Lord is righteous. Then he moves forward. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Let God be the judge. So judge not that you not be judged. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You can leave it up to God because the Lord is Righteous. Not forgiving someone is far from neutral. Forgiveness requires admitting that only God is righteous and you and I are not. Forgiveness necessitates faith to believe that we are righteous only with God's righteousness so that we do not store up the wrongs done to us and star in our own fantasy revenge movies of the heart. Forgiveness comes from saying, God is the judge, the Lord is righteous, and keeping and putting things in permanent perspective. But let's pick up the last three verses. May all who hate Zion, here's that language that's uncomfortable, be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetop, which withers up, withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaths his arms, nor do those who pass by say, blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. These final verses equip us with both a model and a warning. 
as he finds resolution through the truth that the Lord is righteous and moves beyond his past in a way that is both to be emulated and avoided. One piece of the model is this radical candor, his gritty honesty, his reality and authenticity, and it's found in very strong language. He wants those who hate Zion to be put to shame. He wants those who oppressed him to be barren. He wants their harvest to be short-lived grass on the roof, the clay roofs of the Middle East, when the summer heat comes and burns them up. No harvest to gather. The reaper doesn't have uh, anything to fill his hand or the binder, the sheaves in his arms. So the traditional greeting that goes all the way back to the book of Ruth, of the Lord be with you, and the farmer would reply, and the Lord bless you, would not be heard, but rather deafening silence. Now you can't fault this guy for being, not being honest with God because he not only leads judgment to God, he also continues to practice emotional frankness with God. And this is the important stuff you need to hang on to. He's not bottling it up inside, pretending it's not there. Nor is he having some kind of public meltdown in the office and they have to call security. He's not destroying his oppressors in a rampage or flaming, burning down people's houses by way of social media and going on a rampage. This is between he and God. And what I want to call devotional honesty, given to us partly as a model. Here then's another reason why you and I need personal time of interacting and encountering the scripture and journaling and prayer. This is why they're important. Because in that time alone with God, you can tell God what is honestly going on in the inside and then encounter God and be brought back to the right place. The sting of the psalmist's feelings is being drawn out by God in the private devotion realm. He's telling God how he feels, trusting God to discern the right from the wrong in those feelings and leaving it to the God, the Lord is righteous, so that, as it were, on the other side of those feelings of vengeance now given to God comes the possibility of forgiveness. So this is partly a model. Yet as soon as you say that this is a model, you begin at once to realize it's also a warning in these words. Because on one level, these words are very vindictive. This is one reason why you have to take a subtle approach to the different types of literature in the Bible. Not everything felt or said or sung in the Psalms is to be a model for us to say or feel or sing. So these words function like a road sign saying, bridge out, road closed. Some of the histories as well as the Psalms are given to us as warnings. There's a warning here to those who have power over others. Perhaps you're a business owner, a teacher, a politician, 
or a parent. The anger that we find sometimes simmering here is what happens when someone feels that they're being kept down, mistreated, abused. When human beings are treated like slaves, they're tempted to turn their affliction upon those who've afflicted them. It's understandable, and it's warnings to those in power, and another reason to be grateful if you don't have much power. It's also a warning to us when we feel afflicted. It's so easy to give in to those feelings, lash out, and wish in our hearts that one day our tormentors will get what they deserve. In his reflection on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis says that the kind of vindictiveness we sometimes find in the Psalms is only really possible for someone who has a clear sense of right and wrong. Those who still live in a world where they expect everyone to behave selfishly and think there's no judgment to come can just live as if there are no consequences of any kind whatsoever. This, he argues, is a lower and lesser sin. To think there's no truth, no right, no wrong, nothing violated. But to those who realize and have been awakened to the fact that the Lord is righteous, there comes a greater responsibility as well as a greater danger. So Lewis writes, the great men, potential saints, not little people who've become merciless fanatics. Oh, not little people who become merciless fanatics. And those who are readiest to die for a cause may easily become those who are readiest to kill for a cause. Prophetic, considering the world we live in now, isn't it? Not that there's any wish for killing here, but then comes the final model warning blended together, and we wrap it up with this. It's a model because it helps us trust God is righteous, to be honest with our feelings before God and therefore suck out the venom of our own vengeance. Model and a warning. It's just too easy to look at the one who is afflicted for us and instead of blessing him, our Savior, actually end up preventing others from blessing him as Lord the righteous one. Here we go, listen. Instead of personally and privately saying to God, this is actually how I feel about the past, we turn on him and stop others from worshiping him when our anger goes to anyone else but him. Anger out of the past blinds us to see from seeing him for who he truly is, our Lord and our Savior. But somehow, some way, in his grace and in his mercy, that incongruity, in that incongruity, congruity is formed. Because our past afflictions can be taken to him 
as Lord, the judge, the judge who will judge justly both our afflictions and our afflicting of others. Both our oppression and our times of of being the oppressor. Both our blessings and our curses. Both our praises and our blasphemies. He can take when we give them to him and transform them. You see, getting over your past is really all about having the cross at our heart. Those wounds that we have received can either be taken to the cross and they're judged by God as wrong or left to fester inside us like a seed that will germinate in an eternity of separation from God called hell. We can't just let it go, but we can see it go to the cross with him, nailed, hung, suffering, and dying. Yes, everything you've done, but more importantly, to be free, everything done against you, he took to the cross to get free from your past. Give it to the one who's already carried it there for you. I hope in some way this makes sense on a level that can empower you to live free from the pain of your past. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.